0: Welcome to the Auditorium Podcast, a portal into the fringes of culture.
1: Welcome, pilgrim, to the inner sanctum in the high Tibetan mountains of Nabisco. You have passed many dangers and trials along the way. Now, you have proven yourself. You, Dave Mountfield, are ready for me to reveal the great hidden truth of this universe this universe is just one giant spiraling biscuit that only appears to manifest in different forms of biscuits as a means of experiencing itself in different flavors now i'm going to share with you an epic poem that should bring you in a few quid if you listen carefully
2: Plenty hell. Oh
1: I was just having this amazing vision. Who woke me up? Paul Lockman. What? What? Paul Lockman, the man the man fixing the, the poor lock. You know the lock on the studio door's been dodgy for weeks now. Have you what have you been have you been at those psychedelic biscuits again? Yeah, yeah, but this place was real. This was the inner sanctum of the Tibetan
2: Mountains. I need to find out. Discover what the epic poem was. Oh God, I'm gonna have to take a pilgrimage now to find it.
1: Well, you're going to need a bit of help with that from the Auditorium
2: podcast. Okay. I'm willing to bet, because it's happened before, this will be of some use to me. But who have
1: we got doing this? Because it has to be someone good. This is Major League. Uh, Hang on a minute. I don't know. I've got it written down somewhere. Um, It is Dr. Rupert Sheldrake. Sheldrake? Yeah, yeah. And he's doing a... He gave a talk for the Brighton Festival in May 2016 on pilgrimages and psychedelia excellent good so i reckon he's your number one man to give some advice on on how to go and meet the uh, the great cosmic biscuit in the sky here's dr rupert sheldrake on pilgrimages spiritual quests psychedelic drugs and stuff like that
3: i think pilgrimage is rooted in our biological ancestry great a great many species are migratory for example swallows migrate from southern Africa to England every spring. They often nest in the very same barn or roof eaves uh, that they nested in the year before. Uh, They can pinpoint with great accuracy where to migrate to, and then in the autumn they migrate back to Africa. Now you could think of this as some kind of proto-pilgrimage. It's a journey with a goal. Uh, They're going in search of warmth, nourishment, Um, and uh, sustenance Um, and indeed pilgrims are doing that but in a more spiritual sense our ancestors for most of human history were hunter-gatherers and hunter-gatherers have to move around in order to gather plants berries roots nuts or whatever and they have to move around in order to hunt but the animals they hunt are often migratory like reindeer in in the arctic um, so uh, they had a nomadic lifestyle um, and often followed seasonal routes year by year. Um, and in Aust- among Australian Aborigines, these routes were associated with stories called, which were sung, the song lines, um, which, connect- which connected the journey with the story. And these, there were key points on the journey, which were, as it were, the focus of each stage of the journey. When people began to live in settled communities, something that happened in Britain about, what, 5,000, 6,000 years ago, um, uh, then there was a, still a tendency to move to particular places for festivals. I mean, think of Stonehenge. It was clearly a major ceremonial festival. People must have gone there uh, for festival occasions at the solstices, for example. Uh, But it wasn't in the middle of a big city, Uh, it wasn't like the central temple of a huge city. The people who came there, migrated there, moved there, are on a kind of pilgrimage to this sacred place for these festivals. Uh, Not unlike the way that people go on a kind of pilgrimage to Glastonbury for the Glastonbury Festival uh, every year. Uh, They converge uh, from different places. Some people I know have actually walked there, treating it as a pilgrimage. So um, I think these are very deep patterns in human nature, and they existed in Europe before Europe became Christian. The reformers had a different view, and they suppressed pilgrimage. Um, Thomas Cromwell issued an injunction against pilgrimage in the reign of Henry VIII. The army was sent out to stop pilgrims going to Canterbury. The shrines were nationalized and desecrated, the riches of the monasteries plundered by the king. And many of the shrines and relics were destroyed. But because the tourists have to pretend that they're modern, enlightened, uh, rationalist type people, uh, they have to pretend they're going out uh, there out of a deep interest in art history. And I think one of the simplest paradigm shifts we can undergo in the modern world is to flip the paradigm back from tourism to pilgrimage. If you go to a Hindu temple, do a puja, Um, go as a pilgrim. Uh, Not as a tourist. It makes life much much more enjoyable and makes traveling uh, gives it much more point Uh, A couple of years ago. I was wondering what to do with with a 14 year old godson of mine. He's over sophisticated um, uh, Somewhat cynical uh, and has everything and so and I've stopped giving stuff to children or indeed to anyone because everyone's got too much stuff so I now try to give experiences not stuff Those things that don't leave residues or don't have to be put away somewhere or uh, or given to Oxfam or anything. Um, So um, I tried to think, what can I do with this boy for his 14th birthday? And my friends were trying out the South Downs route and the North Downs route to Canterbury at the time. These are two young men called Guy Hayward and Will Parsons, who are um, spearheading the British Pilgrimage Trust. and they told me about a wonderful final bit of the North Downs Way. Um, so I said to my godson, OK, this is the, the birthday present if you want it. We take the train to a little village called Chartham. We walk uh, about eight miles to Canterbury um, through meadows, fields, woods, orchards. Uh, we picnic at Bigbury Hill where Julius Caesar defeated the Britons on his invasion of Britain. Uh, um, we go to the Black Prince's well, a couple of miles from Canterbury, an ancient healing well. We walk into Canterbury. We light candles at the Shrine of St. Thomas. We have a cream tea, go to Coral Evensong, and then catch the high-speed train home uh, to London. I, would you like to do it? Without hesitation, he said, yes. And we had a most blissful day. We, I got to know much better than I would have done otherwise. Walking with a purpose uh, gives a completely different sense of a journey. This is a scientific principle in occupational therapy. As soon as you have a goal or a purpose, things become very different in the way they feel. If I'd said, would you like to go for a walk in the country with me, he might not have been so interested, and it wouldn't have been as much fun. Now, rituals. Just want to talk about uh, a particular kind of ritual, rites of passage. Many cultures have rituals uh, where uh, When people change from one state of life to another, they have a ritual act that involves dying to one state of being and being reborn in another. One form of rite of passage is the commonest one in our society, I suppose, although increasingly rare, is weddings. um people you know stag parties and hen nights and things are about a final binge as a bachelor or a spinster uh, before you enter this new state. Um, but in many societies, there are rites of passage for adolescents when they move from uh, childhood into sexual maturity and and become adults rather than children and many of these traditional rituals involve rites of passage that involved death and rebirth. Sometimes in Native American tribes, they'd involve spending days in the wilderness, often in great danger. And in fact, some people didn't survive. So you literally came up against the prospect of death. And confronting death and then coming back to life in a new role is uh, the ultimate rite of passage. We now know a lot about death near-death experiences because many people have not as part of a ritual but many people in our society have near-death experiences more people than ever before because of coronary resuscitation Um, um, lots of people who would have died in the past are now resuscitated and um, many of them have near-death experiences probably all of you have read about these some of you may have had them Um, but for those who haven't the basic pattern is that uh, people feel themselves floating out of their body, they can often see nurses or operation going on in a hospital, um, and then they find themselves going through a kind of tunnel or tube into the light, and they feel that they've lost all fear, they've they've been liberated, they're in an extraordinarily peaceful, happy realm. But because it's a near-death experience, they have to go back. Many of them are reluctant to go back. But when they recover, uh, they say, I've died. I died. I've had this experience, and now here I am again. They've died, and they've been reborn in their body. And many of them have a great change in their attitude to life as a result of it. Uh, they often lose the fear of dying. Um, they." often lead happier lives and have a greater sense of the spiritual reality to which they're potentially indeed from moment to moment connected so um that is what something has now been studied scientifically in in quite some detail The atheists and skeptics, of course, say that this is not really going out of the body, it's not really entering heaven or a heavenly realm, it's just uh, hallucinations produced by an anoxic brain. Um, Studies have now been done of people in cardiac operations where the brain and the body are cooled down. They measure the Brain activity with electroencephalographs and find that it's flatlined, and people still have these experiences when there's no brain activity. So it rather goes against the assumption it's kind of chaotic, hallucinatory activity in the brain. Um, I myself think that these played a key role in early Christianity. I think that John the Baptist was a drowner. Um, I think that uh, people lined up on the banks of the River Jordan, and uh, he said to them, you know, repent of your sins, you can die and be born again. And they came in, he held them under, and after a while brought them up again. And many of them who had that experience said they'd died, they'd been born again, they'd lost the fear of death. They'd had a near-death experience. Well, it's quite easy to induce one if you hold them under long enough. (laughs) It's low-tech, um, <laughs> uh, quick, um, and of course all this was pre-litigation, so uh, he may have lost a few, but... Uh, um, um, and, um, I think that it, you know, in just a few minutes, someone would have this, and then he probably had a team of helpers who'd help sort of resuscitate them and sort of get the water out of their lungs. And, Next, please. And uh, it, it would be something that could be done on quite a large scale. Um, the, uh, within a few centuries, Christians were no longer doing this. Um, they were mostly baptizing infants by sprinkling holy water on them, which lost this transformative role. It was revived by radical Protestants in the 16th and 17th century, people who called themselves Anabaptists. Anna means back to. Uh, they went back to the, process, the practice of adult baptism by total immersion. And many of them in the 16th and 17th century went around saying they'd died and been born again. And their current descendants, like the Southern Baptists in Texas and elsewhere, still say this and still have baptism by total immersion. Now, I imagine, and in modern-day Texas, they're much more aware of health and safety issues and litigation and liability, etc. So probably not many people have actual near-death experiences now, but I wouldn't mind betting that in the 16th, 17th century, when people's lives were totally transformed by this, when they had a radically new vision of what the spiritual life could be all about, that they had actually had this experience. I think it helps us reinterpret uh, this otherwise puzzling aspect of of Christian history. It also helps us understand that when they were talking about dying and being born again, it wasn't just something symbolic. I don't think John the Baptist was doing this for symbolism. Why have symbolism when you can have the real thing? Uh, I mean, you can actually die and be born again. uh, So why just have something that's symbolic? It doesn't make much sense unless you've got the real experience to relate it to. Anyway, I think that um, in many ways, um, modern scientific studies show uh, shed a new light on traditional spiritual experiences, as they have done on meditation, um, as they have done on near-death experiences. Many people, as I say, also have spontaneous mystical experiences. Many people have them through taking psychedelic drugs. And indeed, I would say the commonest way in which people have death and rebirth experiences in the modern world especially among young people is through psychedelics in the modern world especially psychedelics like dmt dimethyltryptamine uh, which can induce uh, something very similar to a near-death experience the whole thing only lasts five minutes but people feel that they've died they've been gone out of their body they've gone into a completely different realm they've encountered other beings and then they've come back and people who've had this experience are transformed by it many young people are transformed by this in our society now it's completely under the radar Uh, but I think that this is one of the ways in which a spiritual awakening is occurring I don't think it's any coincidence that some of the more exciting religious movements in Britain today are psychedelic churches like Santo Daime and do Vegetal, which have come from Brazil, um, which are psychedelic Christian churches where they take ayahuasca as a communion. And also um, there are shamanic forms of doing this in a ritual way. Uh, some people have said that what's going on now is a kind of reverse missionary movement. Um, And I think it's rather interesting that people are coming from Brazil and many people here uh, having these experiences It's a kind of spiritual awakening for many and I think it's of great value of course psychedelics can be dangerous people can go crazy sometimes if they're prone to that anyway it can tilt them over the edge become psychotic so I'm not saying everyone should try psychedelics in an uncontrolled way, but I am saying that for some people in the modern world, it's an extremely enlightening and helpful uh, spiritual opening. It certainly was for me.
1: Thank you, Rupert. Over 20 years ago, I, I came to Brighton and, and bought a bunch of tickets for, for the festival. And I wasn't, I, I just was interested in, in various topics that were, uh, that were being offered. And there were different talks on, and there was a, a gentleman called Richard Dawkins who was giving a talk, so I went, I went along. And, um, and we got to ask questions, I forgot what he was talking about, but we forgot to ask questions at the end. And I wanted to know if he had a sense of humor uh, and people had asked some very uh, complicated questions about life, you know, the universe and everything. So I thought, I thought, what I'll ask him is whether he prefers Blur or Oasis, um, and that will, you know, that will kind of test, test the water, really. And uh, and I was the last person to ask, ask a question, and. Um, I pissed off half the audience, um, and hopefully delighted the other half, and I said, I said, I've got a question for you, the question is, blur or oasis? And he said, I'm sorry, can you repeat the question? I said, I said, which do you prefer, it was, in, you know, it was in the news at the time, do you prefer a blur or oasis? And he said, I know not of these things of which you speak. Um, and I thought, I have my answer. Um, and I would have had a question for you tonight, which was, if you were to take a pilgrimage to the, uh, the grave of, of Prince or David Bowie, which one would it be?
3: David Bowie. <laughs>
1: give another big round of applause, please, for Dr. Rupert Sheldrake. Dr. Rupert Sheldrake there with a fascinating talk, and probably one that will maybe divide listeners. Some people will, will think he's talking a lot of rot, and other people, I think, will be open to such ideas. I think it very interesting that Sheldrake is one of only a handful of people who've been banned from TED, who he gave a talk a few ago. TED years- Lectures. TED Lectures. He gave a talk a few years ago for a TED conference right. whose theme was ideas to challenge existing paradigms. And they invited <laughs> they invited brilliant. Sheldrake. So Sheldrake came on and said, and his what he was saying was was that can we be sure that our supposed universal laws in science are as fixed as we claim they are? You know, were they did they come into existence at the beginning of the universe fully formed? Yes. Did they evolve over time? Are they are they changing? Should we keep a more open mind to that? And they they banned him from TED. Isn't and they, that marvellous? I mean, it, they kept,
2: Please come and talk to us about paradigm shifts. No, no, go away! Don't <laughs> talk to us about Not paradigm shifts. Not a genuinely char- challenging <laughs>
1: yeah. one. And they and they also banned his, his friend Graham Hancock, who gave a who gave. A, I mean, tell you the best. Ban- was that the, his talk about ayahuasca? Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Yeah, I mean, he talks excellent. about how he how he that. cured himself of a of a of oh, a marijuana, of, addiction. marijuana yeah. addiction with ayahuasca. And should we maybe reconsider our attitudes towards psychedelic plants that they could potentially help us well
2: it's it's the other isn't it it's the idea it that, the that
1: within a mundane world can
2: exist an, an entirely different set of beliefs that actually is deeply attractive in an increasingly homogeneous world you are if you are in any way curious drawn to that it's the, the it's the draw of the occult where it's going take necessarily so all that stuff you learned earlier take necessarily so mm. come and have a look at this and that's and, That's and the I, point it,
1: of the auditorium, ladies and gentlemen. Well, it is. It is. I, I think about. I think about something. Alan Moore said in in, the, in describing magic. He says that magic is the exchange between the material world and the immaterial world. And of course, what is going on on a pilgrimage is that very exchange between yeah. the physical, the physical act of walking, and the place. And the sensations of of being in that place and and the immaterial, which is our mythical relationship with it in terms of its relation to a story or its, you know, its relation to... Our
2: superimposing of a
1: story upon a place, which creates a richness of meaning. And so it just remains for me to suggest that at the end of this programme, we take a small pilgrimage of our own. Yes. um, Because... Quite wise. We're out of biscuits. We're out of biscuits. (laughs) Okay. So do you know what I'm going to suggest? Um, I'm
2: hoping, but let's hear it. Tesco's. Yes, OK. Excellent.
0: Let's go. The Auditorium is presented by Dr. David Bramwell and Mr. Dave Mounfield. The producers are Andrew Mailing and David Bramwell. Studio managers were Sam Walter and Hannah Schmidt. Discover more about the show and upcoming live events at oddpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at OddPodcastUK and contact us through contact at oddpodcast.com. If you like The Auditorium, please leave a review for us on iTunes. The Auditorium is a best-selling book full of fascinating stories about pioneers, outsider artists, adventurers and counterculture heroes. It's published by Hodder and Stoughton and is available through Amazon and all good bookshops. Disgraced former studio manager Lance Dan is currently serving time at Her Majesty's pleasure.